been lonely? Have you ever been lonely? I hear some, yeah, I, mean, I certainly have been lonely at times in life. Um, and Timothy, Timothy was lonely. This is not the biblical Timothy, by the way. This is another Timothy. Timothy was lonely. He was a 12-year-old boy, uh, and he was, he'd been sent to boarding school. His father was in the forces, so he'd been sent to boarding school because the family traveled around. Uh, and he was, he was the typical nerdy, with glasses, and this is back in the 1970s, so National Health Service regulation glasses, uh, not very sporty in a school that really liked sport. So he was the, typically the one who would be picked last, usually was picked last when you lined up. And then, um, and he'd been there for about a year or so, uh, and he was obviously, and he had managed to become unpopular with most of his class um, just by being himself. And then uh, he came back after the holidays and he had he'd broken his leg during the holidays. He'd had a go at something sport. He'd had a go at roller skating, I think it was, and he broke his leg. Um, and so he was not only in the school, which was spread over quite wide grounds. This is actually, hopefully, if this works. There we are. That's a picture, if you can see it, of the main buildings of the school. Um, I was there too. This picture was taken in the, in the sort of 80s. It looks maybe look a bit grand. It was built in the late 1900s, early 20th century, so sort of think late Victorian, Edwardian. When we got there in the 70s, nothing had been upgraded. Okay, the sinks, the baths, the facilities, everything was as it was about 70 years before. So it was, yeah, it was, we were in, we were there, I was there, of course, because uh, my parents were in the forces. So the taxpayers were paying for it, so it wasn't going to be that smart, was it? Don't, yeah, not Hogwarts or anything like that. Um, so Timothy was there, and uh, he had broken his leg. He had to go around on crutches. It was quite a serious break. He carried a big satchel with him, and he struggled, to be honest. He struggled to get around these buildings, and he had to walk from these buildings down. We were in separate houses around the grounds. There's quite a long walk between the houses. He struggled with all of that. It was hard work for him. And I saw this because I just joined the school. I, I came along in the second year, and I saw him struggling. And my conscience, I wasn't a Christian at the time, my conscience said, I need to help this boy because he's struggling with his bag and moving around the place. But I knew that if I helped him, I would be identifying with him. I didn't, wasn't particularly friendly with him, wasn't particularly unfriendly. I hadn't really sort of found my place yet in the social hierarchy. But I knew that if I started carrying his bag and became his friend, that would put me in a certain place with regard to the rest of the class. But my conscience said I should do it. So I did. I started carrying his bag. What I didn't know was that Timothy was a Christian. He came from a Christian family. And it's partly through that relationship and that friendship with Timothy. And the friendship developed. And he was best man at our wedding. Um, so that friendship came out of that. And that was out of obedience. That was me obeying my conscience all those years ago. I got my notes in the wrong order, which doesn't help, does it? Friendship. We're talking today about Philippians. We're looking at the letter of Philippians. We're going through a series looking at the letter of Philippians. And Philippians 2, chapter 2. And Steve gave a brief introduction to the letter of Philippians a few weeks back when he introduced it. Uh, and just remind you of that, Philippians is a letter to, from Rome, it, it's written by Paul, and it's to 
the church in Philippi. It's the church that he founded. It's, it's in Acts 16, I think it is. Uh, and some of the people that are referred to in Acts 16 are Lydia, the, the dealer in cloth, I think she was, slave girl who was released um, from demonic power, the jailer, remember the story of Paul being locked up and there was an earthquake and um, you know, the jailer was about to throw himself on his sword. And these were some of the early Christians in that church. And so Paul was writing to them probably about 10 or 15 years later. Were those people still in the church? We don't know. But one thing that sets the letter of Philippians apart from other letters that Paul sends, like Corinthians and Romans, is that it's, a, it's very much a friendship letter. There are particular letter-writing styles in the sort of classical period, and, and Philippians fits into the friendship style of letter that was known in Roman times. So it's less instructional than many of the other letters. And it's more about friendship. He's, he's extending friendship. He's reconnecting with his friends in Philippi. Yes, there's some encouragement in there. Yes, there's exhortation. This is very much a friendship letter. And as part of that friendship letter, there's a prayer. And, and Steve, um, in, the, in the opening chapter, and Steve referred to this prayer uh, when he preached on it. He said that Paul prayed this prayer, wrote this prayer for the Philippians. But Equally well, he could have been writing it for us because this, this is a letter to the Philippians, but it's part of scripture. It's a letter to us as believers. Paul didn't know it. So he had no relationship with us, obviously, but it's still a letter to us. And part of that prayer in chapter one is, well, this is the prayer from chapter one. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight and that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. That's in chapter 1 of Philippians. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And my prayer for us this morning is that we abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight as we come to looking at Philippians 2, the first few verses of Philippians 2. So I failed to bring my water bottle up. Do you mind passing it? Drying up here. Thank you. Oh, I'm being rearranged. Thank you. So this is a friendship letter. And letters are made up of words. Letters include words. And there's three words we're going to look at particularly this morning. And those words are the magic of technology and Microsoft PowerPoint, unity, humility, and obedience. These are three words we're looking at today. Unity, humility, and obedience from Philippians chapter 2. And at the end of the service, well, before the end of the service, actually, because it won't have finished then, we're going to have an opportunity to respond. I'm going to give us all an opportunity to respond. So you might be wanting to, to ask the Holy Spirit now, you know, Lord, is there anything you want to say to me this morning through what I'm going to hear? Is there any, maybe there's already things you've, you've heard through the, through the time of worship and through the prayers and the, and the bits and pieces people have brought. You will have an opportunity to respond and we'll have an opportunity to pray for one another and encourage one another at the end of the service. And particularly around these words, unity, humility, and obedience. 
Now, I'm following on from Steve's preach on chapter 1, verses 19 to 30, which took place last week. Of course, if you were here last week, you didn't hear Steve's preach. Uh, he'd written something like a, was it a seven or a nine page epic, which we missed out on. And it's a real shame because I mean, there's some great stuff in those verses at the end of chapter one. In, in, there's the wonderful verse 21, it's in, in chapter one, but there's a wonderful verse 21, which is Paul writes, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, there's just so much that you could unpack from that. But we're not going to this morning. Sorry. But one of the challenges with the Bible is it's broken up into verses and chapters. And these verses and chapters weren't there in the original. They weren't there. Paul didn't write it in verses and chapters. Paul just wrote it as a, as a flow. And sometimes the breaks don't always come quite where you'd like them to come. And in this particular context, the first 11 verses of chapter 2, which is what I'll be looking at, really connect very much back into chapter 1, and particularly verse 27. This is Paul's exhortation in verse 27 of chapter 1, which is, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, yeah, I should have put it on the slide. I'm just thinking I should put it up there on the slide. Never mind, I didn't. Whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever your circumstances, conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves, behave in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm a very practical person, and when somebody says something like that, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, I immediately think, uh, yeah, sorry, what does that mean, actually? I mean, how does that, yeah, I, I want to see it. I want to see it visually. Yeah, how does it, how does that actually look? How does that work in practice? Yeah, what actually does it mean to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, Paul goes on to address that in the following verses and flows on into chapter two, which is what we're looking at. But this is what it's rooted in. It's conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, there are some other bits and pieces at the end of chapter one. There's references to the struggles that the, uh, the Philippians were having. And we don't know what those struggles were. There's reference to suffering, but we never know what that suffering was. Was it some form of persecution? And there's a church that had their own issues as well. Later on in chapter two, it talks about grumbling. And later on again in the, in the book of Philipp Philippians, are we? Sorry, I'm distracted. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's very good of them. There we are. Serving the community, or the community serving us. Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, so where was I? So yeah, so the, the Philippian church had its issues. Maybe it's some sort of suffering, some sort of persecution. There was certainly some sort of issues possibly around. They were grumbling and moaning. There was an, uh, at the end of Philippians in chapter 4, it talks about a couple of women who seem to have some sort of disagreement. So there was a church with its challenges, with its issues. Just like every other church. This is what churches do. Churches have challenges and issues because they're full of people. You know what they say, if you ever find the perfect church. Don't join it, because you'll spoil it. Philippi was um, far from being a perfect church. But Paul was also, he was keen to help churches address their issues, but he was also keen to see churches grow. I mean, Paul's heart was an evangelist. He was, you know, that's what he did. He went around uh, that region of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, visiting cities, founding churches. 
And he wanted to see the Philippians grow. He wanted to see their faith grow as individuals. He wanted to see their church grow. And how would it grow? By conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's calling them to make a choice, to behave in a way which is worthy of the manner of the gospel of Christ. There's a choice here. This, isn't, yeah, this, this is something that they will choose to do. Something that we today, remember Paul potentially writing to us today through Scripture, not potentially, writing to us today through Scripture, God speaking to us today through Scripture, making a cho- calling us to make a choice. So let's look at those verses then. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And these are from one version, and even uh, the version I've got here is a slightly different version. Isn't it great? They keep coming out different versions. Uh, therefore, so therefore, so this is looking back to the end of chapter 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then... Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I said this morning we're looking at three words. Unity, humility, obedience. And the first three verses there, let me just go back to them, are talking very much about unity. What does unity look like? I mean, he's talking there about doing nothing out of um, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others above yourselves. What does, but what does unity look like? What is this like-mindedness? that he's talking about. What does that look like? Um, an illustration might help for the, for the issue of unity. Does it mean we all need to be the same? If we were a wall, and a wall's a good illustration. You know, Paul uses the illustration of building, you know, of a church as a building. It's a we're building on the foundation of Christ. He's the cornerstone. Yeah, is a wall a good illustration of unity? Should we all be the same? Most of those are more or less the same. Or should we be more akin to this sort of wall? I apologize they're all the same color, um, but in terms of 
Yeah, it's a very grey picture there, but lots of different shapes but being built into a wall, but it's still a strong wall, lots of different shapes. And so what does it mean? Okay, so if we're not the same, exactly, if, we, if we're not meant to be exactly the same in terms of, I don't know, let's say, appearance, in terms of the way that we look, yeah, well, still, what does that unity look like? What does that like-mindedness look like? Does it mean we should have the same preferences? Does it mean we should all start supporting particular football teams? <laughs> yes, says Steve, do you hear that? Does it mean that we all like to drink certain types of drink? You know, does it mean that we yeah, should we line up our preferences with one another? Should it mean that we have the same opinions about the way that we do church? Should we all think the same about how the chairs are lined up? Should we all think the same about songs that we sing and which ones we don't sing? Should we think the same about how the service is structured? Unity in diversity. God created each of us individually and gave us each our own individual preferences and our own different ways of doing things and different ways of looking things. But out of that diversity, God calls us into a community of believers in a church to be unified. And that involves having different points of view and different opinions about things. And sometimes those different points of view are about more, slightly more significant matters. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's how we deal with that that deals with, creates unity or destroys unity, damages unity. It's understanding the relationships between us and allowing God to work through those and work out his purposes through our diversity. So Paul here is asking the Philippians to make a choice. He's asking them to choose to be like-minded. He's asking them to choose to, be nothing out, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He's choosing, asking them to choose to value others above themselves, because that helps to build unity as a community of believers. Unity is very much at the heart of the commission strategy. Those of you who are unfamiliar with commission, commission is the body that we are part of. Uh, it, in turn, is part of the New Frontiers organization that's been around since the 60s, I think. Uh, and Commission has a vision, it's, it's, we have it on this banner here, and the vision of Commission is to see thousands of lives transformed through hundreds of churches in tens of nations. That is what Commission and the churches, the 50 or so churches currently in Commission are working towards. And they have a strategy for that, they have a plan, and it's under four, they've got four different letters to describe it, it's called the SURE strategy, S-U-R-E, and the letters stand for SEND, UNIFY, Release and equip. Send, unify, release and equip. Unify. Unity is right in there in the middle. Unify. Because they recognize, we recognize, we're all part of commission. We say they, but it's actually commission is us. We're part of commission. Those of us who are part of this church and other commissioned churches. Recognize the value of unity. And they've got teams of people looking at issues like how do we do church? What is a commission way of doing church? What are commission's views on certain key theological issues? Because we, want, we believe it's important as commission to have a consistent, not that we should all do church in exactly the same way, not that we should all be singing the same songs all the, or, or praying the same prayers or, you know, 
there's yes diversity but also having that unity so unity unified very much at the heart of, of commission's values and it's very much at the heart of what we're doing as well um what the the leader of commission is a chap called guy miller uh, and Guy Miller, I've heard Guy Miller speak several times recently at various things that we're involved with. Um, and a few weeks back, he was speaking at Foundations. Excuse me, which is a training course that some of us are doing. And he was telling us about how he, he's currently sort of flip-flops between London and um, Bournemouth. I'm sure it's more planned than flip-flopping, but I'm probably doing him injustice there. He spent some time at Westminster Chapel in London which is now a commission church uh, and down in Bournemouth. And he was talking about how he and his wife, Heather, I think it is, um, make a point of actively going out to witness twice a week. That's one of their challenges of life. Is that if, you know, if they feel called, that they should be witnessing to non-believers at least twice a week. So he was saying how, yeah, they said, oh, we haven't done it this week. So they will go out on the streets and they will meet people on the streets and they will talk to them about the love of God. And I'm sitting there thinking... You're making me feel bad, Guy. And you're also making me feel a bit annoyed with you because it's all right for you because you're paid to do this stuff. You know, you've got salary and you're a big name. So people know you in terms of um, not people on the streets he's talking to necessarily, but certainly, you know, he's, yeah, he's got that status thing. Isn't it? So I'm sitting there feeling rather annoyed and, and I'm questioning his motives. And then God challenged me in that and said, Andrew, you don't know Guy Miller. You've never had coffee with him. You've never had a chat with him or a meal with him. You've never had any form of communication other than what you've heard from the platform. So who are you to judge Guy Miller? And that's a challenge for all of us in church. Who are we to judge one another? So part of what unity is about is not judging one another but also taking the opportunity to get to know one another. Now, there's no way that probably I'm going to have much opportunity to have a cup of coffee with Guy Miller. Certainly, it's even a challenge to have a you know, cup of coffee with necessarily everyone in the church, although there's not that many of us right now. But, uh, but psychologists will tell you, you can't build relationships with more, you know, deeper relationships with more than about 120 people, I think they say. And a close relationship group is only ever going to be more than sort of three to six people. I mean, look at Jesus with the disciples. He modeled that. You know, had a core group of three, then 12, then the wider group beyond that. And that's one of the reasons we're doing Friendship Week, because it's an opportunity for us just to do social things and get to know one another better. So as Mick said at the start, friendship, this is the start of Friendship Week. There's a whole range of things that's happening. Some of us are going to go and have a picnic at Portland Bill after this. Are we still on for the picnic, Anna Christina? Yeah, I don't know if anyone else is planning to go, but certainly we are. Um, and just an opportunity to chat and be social. And there's a list of different activities going on through the week. Some of us are going to go and watch football tomorrow evening um, at uh, uh, yours, aren't we? Yeah. And there's, a, there's a pamper thing. There's a whole range of different things. It's about building relationship. I mean, I, I love football. Not. <laughs> Why am I going to watch football with a people, group of people from church? And, and, and maybe other people, you know, these, Friendship Week isn't closed. It's not just within the church. If you, you know, we're encouraged to bring other people along as well, uh, if appropriate. Build relationships. So I'm choosing tomorrow evening to go and do something that I don't really want to do. 
but because it's a good thing to do to build relationships with other people in the church. I do want to get to know you better. I've only been here eight years. There's scope to get to know you better. Because unity comes in part out of knowing one another better, knowing our strengths, our weaknesses, our hopes, our desires, our dreams, praying for one another, studying the Bible together. And from that, Jesus says, this is how you know, people will, I can't remember the exact verse now, but um, people will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. And that love for one another doesn't just happen. We don't all turn up, oh, we're Christians, where we love one another. That love needs to be a real, tangible thing if it's going to be attractive to the community out there. And by the way, it is really attractive to the community out there. We had a, um, uh, a commission prayer this week, so that, again, over in Bournemouth, spent a lot of time in Bournemouth recently, at Citygate Church. Uh, commission prayer is two days of, of sort of prayer and, and, and information for, for those in various leadership roles across commission. Uh, and one of those speaking was Adrian Holloway. I keep wanting to call him Adrian Morehouse, but that's somebody different. Uh, Adrian Holloway, and he's a sort of recognized evangelist across uh, New Frontiers. So he works in various different spheres. Uh, and one of the things that he said there is that out there, for the most part, they're really struggling with community. We think they've got it. They're okay with community. But out there, in his experience, and he's done a lot of studying around this, they are really struggling out there with community. And for a lot of people outside of church, church community, when they engage with it, it's, it's wow. You guys have got community. That's attractive. So how can we use that to connect with people out there? So things like Friendship Week and many other things that we do are all part of that. Exciting opportunity to take Jesus into our communities. So how else, how else do we, we've talked a bit about unity there, but how do we become unified? There's still a bit of a question mark there, Andrew. I mean, you know, you, you've talked about some of the stuff about unity, but how do I, still? So how do I do that? How do I make it happen in my life? So we come on to the second word, which is humility. Verse 5 of chapter 2 in Philippians, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of as Christ Jesus. He chose to be humble. He is our model for humility. It has that in verses 5, so let's flip back to those. Verses 2 to uh, 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. We watched um, the new superhero film that's just come out on DVD. What's it called? Black Panther. Black Panther last night. Anybody else watch Black Panther? Yes, a couple of people have. We've got the DVD if you want to borrow it. It's quite a good film. I didn't sleep through most of it. Um, but the superhero, there's a lot of superhero films around at the minute. And, and a part, of, part of the story there is the guy with the superhero powers, for a while, chooses to put those powers down. So for a while, he's without his powers, and he's in a situation where he has to deal with life without his powers. Jesus is God. Jesus is a man. 
But Jesus never put down those powers. Jesus is always God. Jesus is a man. That doesn't make sense, Andrew. How how does that, you know, well, Jesus is is God. God created us. We're never going to be able to think quite like God. So there are some things that are going to be quite difficult to understand. So Jesus, as he chose to take on human likeness, he chose to humble himself, even to death on a cross. That was his choice. He made a decision to do that. It, It wasn't as if his God powers were taken away temporarily, so he didn't really have a choice like in the film I talked about, he still at any point could have clicked his fingers and wrapped up the whole of creation and said, you know what, I'm done with this, move on. But he didn't. He chose. God chose to become man, chose to humble himself and to become a servant and to serve others, to be a servant leader. He chose. Choice, choice. Humility is about choice. It's about choosing the way that we behave. It's about choosing how we respond to situations. Humility, the word humility didn't actually exist until Christians started writing it down. It means the word humility is a combination of um, lowly and mind, lowly mind. So the Romans would have talked about, so the concept of humility to Romans was, was um, no disrespect, but it was, it's the way that women think. This is what, the way the Romans looked at it. Remember the Roman view of women was very low. It's the way that slaves think. It's very low. So Paul is claiming that concept for Christians. He's claiming it for Jesus. And Jesus became was, you know, lowly mind, humility. Romans didn't see humility or anything like that as a strength. It, for them, it was a weakness. You don't want to be humble. You want to be strong. You want to be taking advantage of your own situation. You want to think that everything, you know, you can do everything. You know, it's, um, I can do whatever I put my mind to. I can, um, so I'm just thinking about the memes I see on Facebook. You know, how many of those are about us and our own strength and what we can do and what we decide to do for ourselves? Humility is saying, I am weak. True humility is not saying I'm a doormat, but it's acknowledging that we are created beings. We are creatures, and we look up to God as our creator. There's a, let's go the other way, sorry. There's a story that Jesus tells about humility um, in, where is it? Luke, Luke chapter 14. Um, Sorry, there's a few family snaps in here, apologies. Uh, there's a story Jesus tells about humility, and Jesus said, well, yeah, what's, what's humility? He's, he, he attends a, a meal, and, and the, the Pharisees and others attending the meal, they're, they're, they're jostling for position at the table. You know, we want to sit in the, you know, there's, there's the high place, there's the place of honor, I guess, next to the host, and then there's the other end of the table, which is away from everybody else. And Jesus says to them, he gives a parable, he says, you know, a man goes to a wedding banquet, but chooses to sit at the low end of the table, at the lowest end of the table, and then the host can call him up to a place of honor. Humility, it's about choosing the lower place. It's choosing the way we behave. It's choosing to obey. So that's the third word we're looking at today, uh, is, is obedience. And we're in a society that doesn't really do obedience. We're in a society that really doesn't put a high value on obeying the law. 
I mean, I, I, I plenty of people who, who you know, there's a chap I used to work with who, who he ran a team of consultants and he used to pride himself on his integrity. He used to say on a regular basis, you know, I'm a man of integrity. I deal with my staff with integrity. And then he boasted on one occasion about how he managed to avoid paying on tax, some tax on a rather large sum of money that he had got from the States. And I challenged him. I said, you say you're a man of integrity, but you also boast about not paying your taxes. And he was stumped by that. That wasn't really, didn't seem to be an issue for him, frankly. Yeah, I'm a man of integrity. I don't pay my taxes. We are in a culture where the anti-hero is often celebrated. A lot of the heroes in films and things and in books are people who are on the edge of the rule, what's acceptable, or even beyond the, what's the edge of acceptable. You know, people who obey the rules are not celebrated in our society. There is a sense of, well, these are the sort of general ethics we should live by, but actually the actual rules, a lot of that stuff, we can, we can get away with. And, and Jesus, to a certain extent, you know, people can see him as an anti-hero in, in that sense, in terms of you know, with the Pharisees. You know, he, he condemns the Pharisees for the way that they religiously apply the rules about the Sabbath. You shouldn't do anything about the Sabbath. And you, you tithe even, even, the, you know, even your, your tiniest herbs, you tithe them, you give 10%. But those are rules that miss the point of what God was bringing. Sabbath, you know, the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. And when challenged on the issue of taxes, what did Jesus say? Who should you pay? Should we pay our taxes? They asked him. What did he say? Give to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. So it's understanding that. So we live in a society that I said doesn't really celebrate obedience. Doesn't really celebrate humility. You see that every day as you drive around. I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's part of our human nature, isn't it? I mean, am I the only one who, when I'm driving along and someone overtakes me, there's a little bit of a Am I the only one? No, no. You recently got a new car. The old car was a big 2.3 litre um, petrol galaxy. When it was empty, it, you know, it was petrol, so it went like a rocket when it was empty. It was brilliant. Loved it. Also drank petrol. So we now got to a little hybrid. It's a lot slower. And I have to learn humility in the way I drive, which is teaching me a lot. So we're talking about obedience, and who was Jesus talking to obey? Talking about obeying, because he was talking about obeying his father. Nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew twenty-six, part of verse thirty-nine, and Jesus prays, "Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will." Father, if it's possible, so Jesus praying, knowing he's facing the cross, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Have you ever tasted anything really disgusting? What's the most disgusting thing you've ever tasted? Anyone? Any, 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 got any offers? Sorry? <laughs> Brussels sprouts, okay. I quite like Brussels sprouts, Mark. Okay. 
The, the worst thing I probably ever had was a, was, a, was a crab stick. I'm not a big seafood fan. I had a crab stick a few years ago. And you know that you know when you walk past a harbour and the tide has gone out and it's been in the full sun all day and there's that real stench that comes up. That is what that crab stick was in my mouth. It was disgusting. I couldn't get rid of the taste fast enough. But taste is partly to do with actually the physical taste, but it's also partly what we bring to it. So what Marx just said there sounds disgusting without even going there. Um, you know, uh, it, it's... Um, I can drink cow's milk and I can eat cow's milk cheese quite happily, but goat's milk and goat's milk cheese, but some people love it. And I don't know whether it's a taste thing because I've never actually knowingly tried it, but just the, it's like having you know, I, I eat steak on a regular basis from a cow. Would I eat steak from a horse? I've never tried it. But something in my mind says, you know what, that doesn't, it, it, I once drank some green beer at a beer festival and I couldn't work out, is this taste weird because it's green, or does it taste weird because it tastes weird? I just don't know. The taste comes from a mixture of different things. So it's partly our mind that plays it on us, and it's partly the actual thing. Is there a word? Are there words that taste disgusting? Are there words that taste disgusting? Words are partly what we say, comes out of our mouth, but it's partly the emotional baggage or the emotional weight. We've already talked about father. Father is a difficult word for some people. Some people have a loving father. Some people have a more distant father. There are words which they mean more than just the word. They have a, a depth to them, which is, they, they, yes, they create this, emo they have this emotional baggage. They, they say something. And I said, I asked you, what's the most disgusting word? I don't need to repeat anything, but it may not be something that's, anyway. The Romans had a disgusting word. The Romans had a word that, um, yeah, it was just abhorrent. It was just the, the, the concept that it described, that it embodied, was so vile to them that they were, you know, they were, you know somebody wrote down hundreds of years ago, you, you, in the Roman period, Romans shouldn't use this word. They shouldn't even know this word. What was the word? It was the word cross. You couldn't be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. And only the very lowest of the low, the slaves and the criminals were crucified. And the word cross, the, the concept that it embodied was so low that it was, as I said, disgusting, abhorrent, vile. You could not get any lower than the cross. It was the absolute pits. It was beyond, beyond that. It's, it's, I mean, it's difficult for us now to engage with that. I mean, Paul is writing here to the Philippians. I think Steve said that Philippi was more Roman than Rome, I think you said. It was very much a Roman territory. They, they understood this, and they would have understood the word cross. And so when Paul writes, let's go back to that. When Paul writes, he humbled himself to becoming obedient, obeying God to death, but not just death, not just any old death, but death on a cross, that most disgusting place, that place you shouldn't even think about, that's where Jesus went. That's obedience. That was what he was called to do, to die in that place for us, 
And what comes next? To me, having, having looked at this over the last few weeks, you know, there's, these, this, these, these verses have become even more profound. And there's this the massive contrast here this, between these verses. In verse 8, found himself in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, God exalted him to the highest place. See the contrast there? It can't get any lower than death on a cross, exalted to the highest place. This is Jesus. He went to the lowest and is exalted to the highest. It's humility. That's obedience. Thank God we're not challenged to obey in that, to that same extent for the most part. There are Christians who are martyred from time to time. And it's a sad fact. It still happens in part of the world. But most of us, we probably know we won't see that in our lives. But God calls us to obey. And of course, these verses here talking about God exalting Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every other name, the other name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I mean, that's great. Jesus is exalted to the highest place. Steve last week gave the illustration with the ladder. Um, and he talked about and he asked the question where are we on that ladder as Christians? And Marion chipped in. Anyone remember what Marion said? Where are we on that ladder with Christians as Christians? Jesus is at the top and we're and, and you know the worst of the worst at the bottom. We are seated in heavenly places, yeah. So these verses here talking about Jesus being lifted up. We are lifted up with him. Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Ephesians, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. God raised Jesus up. God raises us up. So the challenge for us this morning, the challenge for me and the challenge that I think God wants us to bring to us is around Obedience. What does obedience look like? We've talked about what obedience looks like for Jesus. It's going to that very lowest place and rising up to the being elevated to the highest place. What does obedience look like to us? Do you guys want to come back in? So we're going to have a time of responding now, in just in a moment or two. What does obedience look like to us? Obedience initially. For those of us who are outside of faith, for us, before we became Christians, obedience was responding to that voice, responding to the Holy Spirit's prompting, responding, responding to God coming and touching us. Mark, to Mark's story, talked about his response just last week. Mark responded to that prompt. Come and enter into life. Come and put your faith in me. Come and join me, says Jesus. That's obedience. But obedience takes a wider form than that for us and our lives. Now, I can't tell you exactly how you should be obedient to Jesus. It's not my place to do that. And I can't tell you exactly what rules and principles you should necessarily follow in detail. But I can tell you who you should be obedient to. 
And that's obedient to Jesus. And that's, so I want to give us some time now and for us to just listen to God's voice and to be open to hearing. And is there obedience in your life? Is there something that God is saying to you and niggling at you, you should maybe stop doing this? Maybe something that's not good. Maybe even be something that's good. Maybe God's just saying, take a break from whatever this is. Maybe God's saying to you, this is a relationship that you should stop or a relationship that you should actually invest in. It's about choices. We talked about choices a lot this morning. Choosing. A lot. Obedience is about choice. God doesn't say, you must do this. He's not... There's another picture I had right at the end here. There's another family picture, sorry. Um, me and my grandson. Um, God is a loving father. When he says be obedient, he's not saying follow my rules or else. Do this because I'm God and I'm big enough to tell you what to do. He's saying I'm a loving father. I want you to do these things because they're good for you. As a father, I take my children when they were younger and now my grandchildren to the playground. And we say play in the playground. But you know, there's a fence. Don't go outside the fence. Be obedient. Do what you like in the playground. Well, actually, Rachel would say don't go down the slide the wrong way. Because that would, you know, so there's a bit of flexibility there. But it's a, so that's that God doesn't set rules for just because He wants to set rules. He wants to set rules. He sets rules and principles and boundaries because they're good for us. What rules, principles, boundaries? What's He saying to you this morning? Other things in your life? Maybe you're saying, God, I I want to hear from you. I'm not hearing. I don't know. What would you like me to do? Be open to that this morning. Be open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. In uh, John, John 14, verse 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Obedience. Jesus later on talks about his obedience to God the Father. It's about obedience. God calls us to be to obey, to obey, to be obedient. Maybe the, the obedience is simply, I've got this a real sense of maybe I should pray this thing out loud, but I'm just too nervous to. That's obedience, stepping out. And you know, God honors that. God honors obedience. I, I, I felt when, the moment I got in, started preparing for this preach, I felt we should have a time at the end of response. Now, you may all just fall asleep. You may not respond in the slightest, but you know what? God, what, what, I'm, what God's interested in is us being obedient. It's not measured by the outcomes. It's measured by our heart response. So is there a part of your life where you feel you should be obedient to God or are there areas of your life you want to open up to obedience? I don't know. I'll leave the Holy Spirit to do its work. It's much better than I am. So do you want to start playing or where do you want to go with this? I've come prepared to share a picture that that God gave me this week. But I actually am putting it out there that there may be two or three, maybe even four.